0: Welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Public Debate Programme. This programme engages experts and an invited audience to discussions around cross-cutting issues on peace, security and leadership in Africa.
1: In leadership, the ability of an individual or organization to lead or guide other individuals or team is often considered relative and at times is challenging to pin down what really leadership is and the attributes a leader is expected to have. In a conversation on the practice of leadership with King's College leadership students, the former president of Timor, Jose Ramos Horta, talked on how leadership should be exercised through persuasion and humility and not coercion. President José Ramos Horta argues that as a leader, one important quality you should have is that you care about people and issues, be compassionate and humble, and use your position to try and effect change. President Ramos Horta, who is today known for his work in promoting peace in conflict torn countries was a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1996 for his work in achieving a just and peaceful solution to the East Timor conflict. In his political role, he helped bring about Timor's independence from Indonesia and transition from UN stewardship towards a democracy. The conversation with the students was chaired by Professor Fumi Olonishakin, Vice President and Vice Principal International at King's College, London. Let me
0: first and foremost um, welcome our external guests. Um, We have with us Professor Maxi Schumann, Deputy Dean, Faculty of uh, uh, Humanities at the University of Pretoria. It's a pleasure to welcome you here, Uh, dearest colleague. We've had a long-standing relationship with the University of Pretoria, and that relationship is being revved up to the next uh, stage now. And as you know, we started a joint uh, PhD program, uh, which actually started officially this January. And one of the PhD students is here in our midst as well. But I want to especially uh, welcome His Excellency, President Jose Ramos-Horta, who you all know. I know that he needs no introduction, but I'll say a few words. But before then, I would like to welcome his team uh, to King's College London. Um, And it's a pleasure, Excellency, to have you here. Uh, You are speaking this afternoon to a class of leadership scholars at postgraduate level, master's and PhD. I think a very important aspect uh, of leadership studies that we've come to realize is that is its complexity and the difficulty in pinning down what exactly leadership is. It means different things in different contexts. Um, but when we look at great hero leaders, as the textbooks would tell us, uh, we always expect that they display certain qualities, certain characteristics, uh, that And attributes that make them these great hero leaders, but it's not until we see people responding to real-life challenges, leaving the uh, the laboratory of their companies or corporations or universities or organizations, and they have to step up to the plate because there's great crisis that they have to respond to. There's calamity in terms of. Destruction or disease, or as you have experienced in your country, uh, great violence and societal, op- uh, you know, social upheaval, that one begins to really recognize the multiple dimensions of leadership. Having you here uh, as one of only, uh, I believe, one of only three former presidents or prime ministers that have come to address our class. Pres- uh, former President Obasanjo was here. Julia, who you met. Uh, this afternoon was here. Having you here is exceptional for us because you have had to grapple directly with some of the global, one or two of the global challenges of our times uh, in your own country. And on behalf of the United Nations, you've had to lead uh, global processes. And it's my pleasure to especially welcome you to share your reflections. You know, um, you now know the history of Timor-Leste, you, you know that to be East Timor previously, you know its long history of trying uh, to have autonomous rule in that country. Uh, you know uh, the interventions of the United Nations, and you are aware uh, when you look comparatively at conflicts that have been, uh, com- countries that have been in conflict, that Timor is a shining example uh, because of its own. Uh, internal mechanisms and the way it responded to its own challenges and didn't wait for the United Nations or the external world to dictate. So, Excellency, my students are excited. You might not see it yet on their faces, but when they begin to ask you questions, you will understand uh, what this means to us, especially to have you here. So it's a pleasure to welcome you to King's. I hope it will not be the last time. It will be the first of uh, many collaborations between us. Thank you. You're welcome. Please welcome.
2: The <laughs> well, uh, thank you for the uh, opportunity to share my uh, experience. Not so much as a leader, because I never considered myself a leader in the sense that. Uh, uh, yeah, I became president, uh, but I didn't really lead the resistance movement mm. of Timor Leste for independence. I was an uh, mm. uh, advocate in New York at the UN. There I met, uh, I made colleagues with some from uh, ANC, SWAPU people. Uh, <coughs> then I went back home. After 24 years, became foreign minister. Uh, then we had a political security crisis in soon after independence. Four years, I was made to be prime minister, replacing one who was forced to resign. Then I was pushed to run for president, so I did. I didn't choose it, <laughs> and. Uh, Uh, So, I'm not a real uh, leader in the sense of, uh, you know, you lead uh, a mass movement Mm. and also, uh, uh, I will share with you some of my observations of lessons I learned that impacted on me uh, as a person and how I view leadership. Uh, In uh, ninety, when was Mandela released from Robben Island? Ninety-four.
0: Ninety. 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 Yes. uh,
2: Became uh, so. uh, In
0: in ninety-four, he then became president. President. Yes. yes. Yes.
2: So I went to South Africa in ninety-four. Mandela became president, and I decided because back at that time, ninety-four. Well, uh, I was not terribly well-known. In Australia, more or less, uh, I was known reasonably within the ANC, within Church Network, but uh, not really uh, anyone who someone would uh, say, well, you have to meet this gentleman. (laughs) (laughs) So I decided to go to South Africa, and I had to meet Mandela. Uh, and uh, this was arranged through uh, some friends in Sydney mm-hmm. in, uh, who had uh, a long relationship with ANC through the South African Communist Party, which is part of the ANC. And uh, I arrived in uh, Johannesburg, but uh, you know, in a typical ANC manner, nothing had been organized, you know, (laughs) because, uh, uh, you know, very similar to us, you know, uh, uh, we are not terribly organized in the post-independence. We are very good in agitating, uh, but when it came to post-independence organization, so I arrived and nothing had been organized. I went to the ANC headquarters somewhere, big building, and uh, they uh, dragged a few comrades from around the building to come to see me (laughs) which was fine but I wanted to see was Mandel (laughs) well it was not that easy I uh, made friends with uh, uh, an uh, ANC activist I don't mention his name but I can say his story Uh, he was I think, the last South African ANC operative to be sentenced to death, hanging, before the end of apartheid, because he was one of the masterminders of uh, blowing up the South African Air Force Club. And uh, I remember reading about it before, during the apartheid, a spectacular uh, exercise. Uh, he was captured and obviously sentenced to death. Mandela is released from prison. First thing he did was to order the release of my friend. It was through him uh, so that I said, listen, I have to see Mandela. And I told everybody, I will stay here as long as necessary. I don't have much to do elsewhere. I came here to see Mandela, and that's what I'm going, to, I'm not leaving. <laughs> so they all embarrassed. I went to my friend's uh, private home, uh, two hours away from uh, uh, Johannesburg. After, I think, ten days of waiting. Mm. And, uh, but in the meantime, I did some work. I went to Pretoria, meet with the foreign ministry people. Mm. I went to Cape Town, meet with the uh, members of parliament, of the new parliament. Yeah. And uh, then went waiting around. Finally, phone call came. Uh, comrade president, uh, we'll see you at two o'clock. And that was already midday. We rushed to Johannesburg and went straight to Mandela's residence. I was taken to the first floor, to his bedroom. Mandela was in bed. He had just left hospital. Uh, He saw me and a broad smile and said, oh, you were the one who said you wouldn't leave until you see me. <laughs> I was a bit embarrassed that he knew uh, that I had made it. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, not exactly.
3: <laughs>
2: not exactly what that meant, you know. <laughs> uh, but it was a big, broad smile. And he said, well, as you can see, I just left hospital a few hours before. Mm. He said, I didn't want to, uh, you to wait around. Uh, that's why I decided to see you right away. You must have a l- lot of work to do for your country, for your struggle. I was, uh, so, uh, can you imagine, you know, uh, me, an unknown entity, and you have the uh, giant of history of the world, didn't want me to wait around. He just left hospital. He could have waited, you know, a few days or a week, until completely recover and then deal with some state matters. <laughs> you know, instead, no, he decided to see uh, this uh, arrogant uh, character who said he's not going to leave until I see. Him. So we spent the next hour chatting. And uh, we chat, of course, I brief him about Timor Leste. And uh, he told me about uh, many issues. I asked him, uh, comrade president, I know you are going to Indonesia. Yes, there were reports he was going to Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Please uh, uh, ask to see our leader who is in prison, Shanana Guzman. And uh, I don't know if you people are familiar, Shanana Guzmão, absolutely charismatic individual, was captured. Uh, by the Indonesian military in 92. And they were sentenced to to seven, eight years in prison, in high-security prison in Jakarta. And uh, and Mandela said, I will see what I can do. Well, (coughs) uh, (coughs) after that, I left. Mandela went to Indonesia, and uh, I was in Europe. I was in Lisbon. Uh, I got a message from the ANC, uh, from the Foreign Minister of President Mandela's office saying, Comrade President wants to talk to you. Send us a number where we can call. I rushed to a place, gave the number. Ten minutes later, the phone rang. I pick up the phone. It was President Mandela himself. I didn't know what to do, whether to stand up. He you know, didn't have to stand up because he would not seen me, so... Uh,
3: <laughs>
2: but you have this, you know, this extraordinary man calling you, even on the phone, maybe you should stand up. <laughs> and, uh, so... Uh, but I didn't stand up, but I bowed. I <laughs> um, uh, totally, you know, God, lost, you know. And uh, it's not even the secretary phone you know, to prepare me. It's Mandela yeah. himself. So uh, he said, you probably have heard, I've been to Indonesia. I met your leader. He's a great man. Mm. And he said, when can you come to South Africa? I said, Comrade President, any time you want. How about tonight? I said, well, I don't know because I have to get a ticket. We already got everything arranged for you. Just go to the airport and come. So so back to South Africa to meet with Mandela, Mm. and he told me all about his meeting with President Suwarto of Indonesia, Mm. his meeting with Shanahan Yusmao. So that's how Mandela became. So that's my, uh, uh, I was completely humble. What a great lesson of leadership. Lesson number one that I learned: compassion, you know humility. You have these great men of history, uh, busy. Uh, Timur leste was not, uh, I say, a fashionable, uh, you know, because in our uh, history of struggles, mm-hmm. some struggles become fashionable. Everybody wants to be involved. <laughs> Others, no one pays attention. And at the time, Timor Les was not terribly known, known in some circles, mm. uh, but it was not yet some, something that had captured world imagination. Mm. So Mandela cared about, about us. Partly, he was educated through ANC, because we had long-standing relationship with ANC, mm. through ANC presence in Mozambique, mm. Angola and my uh, uh, frequent contacts with ANC, when I was in New York representing our struggle at the UN. So, and, uh, so uh, first lesson of uh, leadership, humility, compassion. And there, for me, no greater, no greater qualities of a leader than uh, humility and uh, compassion. Uh, and Mandela was all, uh, all of that. Uh, <clears throat> that was my, uh, uh. and then, Shannon Guzman. Uh, Shannon Guzman, uh, his n- real n- uh, name is José Alexandre Guzman. Shanana is his nom de guerre, mm-hmm. uh, poetic name. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh <clears throat> in when decisions had to be made in extraordinarily sometimes difficult times. In '99, the regime of Suharto of Indonesia had fell, had fallen because of uh, numerous uh, reasons, financial crisis that happened there, uh, Southeast Asia economic financial crisis that hit most of the economies, so-called tiger economies of Southeast Asia, spread to South Korea. The military dictatorship of South Korea fell. A great human rights advocate, President Kim Dae-jung, was elected. Uh, So heart of Indonesia fell partly as a result of the financial uh, uh, crisis. Negotiations had been uh, uh, accelerated uh, on Timur, led by Kofi Annan, Secretary General of the UN at that time. Exceptional uh, individual. When he passed away, I went to Ghana uh, to represent uh, our country at his uh, funeral we could not uh, miss uh, pay tribute to that great uh, man, Kofi Annan. So you have uh, Mandela, an African. You have uh, Kofi Annan, another African. Both very much connected to uh, Timor-Leste's independence. Uh, (coughs) Kofi Annan as a diplomat. Mm. And he found ways how to push the issue on the agenda of the Secretary General, because he was committed, he cared about. To. So one quality of leader is that you care about issues, you care about cause, you care about people, and you use your position, your power to try to effect changes, but obviously The Secretary General of the U.N. has limited authority. Mm -hmm. The authority is mostly in the hands of the P-5, and uh, not even all P-5, Uh, mostly the P-3 who contribute the most financially. Uh, The other two, China and Russia, they are equally important, Uh, but often uh, the U.N. uh, system is more subjected to the pressure of the P3. Of course, then you have uh, beyond the P3 the P5, you have uh, other powers that be that are very important in the UN. India, Japan, Germany, uh, Indonesia, Brazil, uh, Nigeria, South Africa with Mandela, all of that. Uh, But there are many others. I don't want to go on mention names, and I uh, miss some, and then they feel offended. But uh, these are countries that uh, uh, for some reason or another have influence, either because they are very good in building coalitions in the UN or because they have raw power. But sometimes even with raw power, you really are not able. Look at uh, how the U.S., you know, number one economic military power, and sometimes not able to bulldoze everyone to support its agenda and uh, I use the word bulldoze deliberately uh, leadership you exercise through persuasion and not through coercion so even a power like the US you, if you follow discussions you know, when uh, Donald Trump came in The new ambassador to the UN, whom I know, I met, a very articulate lady, uh, uh, she's no longer there, uh, Uh. Nikki Haley. Yes, Nikki Haley. She said that the policy of the US administration, we take note, meaning, you know, take note those who don't vote with us. And still, the US was not able to get majority support in the General Assembly. For some recognition of uh, Israel's capital in Jerusalem is Israel's capital. So leadership, you don't exercise only through raw power, and the U.S. does have raw power. Uh, (coughs) So uh, even when you are a major power with uh, all the instruments of pressure in your hands. Leadership, uh, successful leadership is when you know how to uh, really build coalitions through persuasion and uh, a lot through humility. Mm-hmm. I give you an, an, another example. Uh, candidate for Secretary General last uh, two years ago. There were many. And uh, there was one. Antonio Guterres, Secretary of the UN, and uh, from a very small country, Portugal. Uh, on numerous occasions in the past, every time Portugal competed against some other major powers for seats in the UN, whether Security Council, whether Human Rights Council. Uh, I don't mention the countries that uh, were yeah. defeated by Portugal. Yeah. Uh, And Portugal won against them. And some of these countries are, uh, their GDP is like 10 times or 20 times, uh, 100 times bigger than Portugal. And Portugal got it. Uh, I wrote two articles for Huffington Post (coughs) and uh, in support of Antonio Guterres candidacy. And uh, if you're curious, you can go to Huffington Post. You just write. Uh, Jose Horta, uh, Stroke, uh, Antonio Guterres, the Security Council, you might find it. I'm not very good with uh, Googling, uh, but something like that. You'll find two articles in September 2000, uh, was it 15? Uh, the, mm-hmm. come 15 or 16, mm-hmm. uh, he took office 2017, mm-hmm. so it was in 16. And, uh, <clears throat> and I said, uh, beware. The Portuguese won every election they attempt, And why they did it? Well, it's a small country, very low-key. They do their work, their campaign very discreetly, honestly. Uh, I helped Portugal on occasion in the past when I was president. I went to New York. I was not very busy, uh, and uh, I volunteered to help lob, uh, lobby Portugal to win a seat in the Security Council. <laughs> and, um, um, uh, <coughs> and I observe the way they operate as against uh, two countries that they were competing against for two seats, because the Europeans usually very divided. Mm-hmm. There is never consensus among the Europeans. For, like, if there are two seats in the Security Council, Usually, in other regions, there'll be two candidates. (laughs) Now, the European dialogue is three or four. Like, uh, two years ago, it was uh, three countries was uh, for two seats. Sweden, which I supported, and again, I I lobbied, I wrote in support of Sweden. Sweden got in the first round. Then there was one seat left for two. It was Netherlands and, uh, I think, Italy. Well, they had to do the unusual, mm. split the two-year mandate into two. Italy served one year, the Netherlands one year.
3: <laughs>
2: it doesn't happen with Africans, it doesn't happen with the uh, Asians. You know. uh, the Europeans always, uh, even just for a seat in the Security Council, don't agree. It happened before with Latin America. There were. Uh, between uh, um, uh, Venezuela under Hugo Chavez, and um, uh, I think it was um, uh, Guatemala deadlock. Then it was uh, a, a alternative compromise candidate came in Panama, so Panama got it. <laughs> so uh, one uh, discretion, humility. Uh, that lead c- countries or governments to uh, build coalitions and able to... Xanana uh, Guzmão, uh, uh, in very difficult circumstances sometimes, you know, uh, just one uh, example. Uh, in '99, we voted on referendum and the majority accepted independence. Uh, we have, we have uh, uh, like the ANC, like ZANU, SWAPU, we had an uh, armed wing of the resistance. Uh, without agreement by the other side, Indonesia, to canton uh, their forces or canton militia elements under their uh, responsibility, we said no. We Voluntarily, unilaterally, we can tone our uh, fighters because we don't want any excuse, any risk of any of our elements uh, getting involved in violence. In the meantime, the referendum took place, result was announced, and there was widespread violence caused by the other side. Zero from our side, because they were canton. Mm-hmm. Enormous <coughs> pressure was happening put on our fighters mm-hmm. by the population, by the victims. We sheltered you. We fed you for years. Now we are been chased. We have been killed. And you are still in the cantonment. The leader of the armed wing under pressure. And I don't go into details. And uh, threatened to leave the cantonment. And Shanana kept saying no and no and no. I don't know if I were in his position, I would have resisted the pressure to tell the fighters, leave the cantonment, go and fight. So till the very end, re, so it's a very difficult decision uh, to make. Then came independence. After 24 years of struggle, tens of thousands of victims, my own family, brothers, a sister killed. Uh, how would you? Uh, and the, there are many people, many Timorese collaborators, like in many struggles. You, know, you don't have a, uh, 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 evil all in one side mm-hmm. you know, within our own struggle. We have a Timurids who collaborate with the other side.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But also the resistance fighters, they are not all angels. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the biggest numbers of victims were our side. 80% or more estimated at the time by Amnesty International and other researchers were more than 80% of the violence was perpetrated over the years by the Indonesian army. He decided, and with all our support, my support, we must pursue reconciliation among Timorese and among Timorese and Indonesia. We are all victims of what the, of history. Indonesia itself, like many third world countries, by design, by choice, or by stupidity, took part in the Cold War. You know, some siding with China, some with the Soviet Union, some, uh, obviously, the more right wing, like in Latin America, you have uh, Paraguay, Chile, Argentina, all the dictatorships you know, uh, on the American uh, uh, side and in, in the process got people of uh, uh, <coughs> millions around the world vi- victims of the Cold War. Indonesia is one of them. Uh, many uh, Indonesians were killed particularly in 65, 66. And then fearful of the so-called domino theory. You know, Americans were Push out of Vietnam, out of Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. So it was, looked like the confirmation Mm -hmm. of the so-called domino theory, first articulated by Lyndon Johnson in the 60s, Mm -hmm. which served as rationale for the U.S. to intervene in Vietnam Mm -hmm. to stop the advance of it. Well, the dominoes fell, and Timur was part, uh, uh, was victim uh, of this uh, experience. So it's, uh, no. Indonesia itself just came out of a dictatorship. The transition in Indonesia to democracy is very difficult. And uh, so we should not uh, push for an international tribunal. Some Western countries and the NGOs, human rights groups, were strongly lobbying for a special tribunal on the crimes of Indonesia. We said no, and no, and no. First, so we pursue national reconciliation among Timorese. And then second track, a process of reconciliation with Indonesia. We set up two mechanisms. One is national uh, reconciliation mechanism. Second, the first uh, binational uh, international uh, reconciliation mechanism. Between us and Indonesia, so uh, uh, independent individuals with the credibility yeah. appointed by our president, Indonesia appointed uh, five. We appointed five, and they, once well, they did the truth seeking, at the uh, two levels between us and Indonesia, because our situation different from South Africa or different from Argentina or Chile, yeah. in that uh, it was not only a Something that happened among Timorese. There's a third party involved. You do national conciliation, fine, but well, most of the crimes committed by the other side. <coughs> and the other side, Indonesia, appreciated this that we understood their challenge, their difficulties. And uh, today we have uh, the best possible relationship with Indonesians. at uh, And not only officially, because usually when you say, the two countries have great relationship. Well, it's only official level, you know, not people to people. In our case, no, it's also people to people. Uh, it's <clears throat> and that thanks again to Shanana's leadership uh, wisdom.
1: You're listening to Public Debate Program, and our guest today is the former president of Istimo, Jose Ramos Horta.
2: We talk often about... Uh, Prevention of conflict. It is almost a slogan. Uh, Strong recommendation from the panel that uh, I chair, called High-Level Independent Panel on UN Peace Operations, appointed by Ban Ki Moon in 2014 to 15, to uh, to uh, propose to the Secretary General uh, uh, ideas. Recommendations on how to make the UN much more effective in conflict prevention, in mediation, in uh, peacekeeping, uh, peace enforcement, Mm -hmm. protection of civilians in times of conflict, etc. We did that, and one strong recommendation from our side is obviously conflict prevention. Mm -hmm. It's very much on the agenda of the Secretary-General. Does anyone disagree with? that conflict prevention is the best does anyone here disagree No, I presume everybody agrees but if everybody agrees in this room we all agree at the UN Everybody agrees but how come there has not been any real successful prevention why didn't we prevent implosion of South Sudan why didn't we prevent the implosion of Mali and uh, the list goes on well, because it's easier said than done. And uh, the best actors in preventing conflicts are people on the ground. And I kept telling, throughout our discussions in the panel, I always said, uh, the UN is not the best actor. The best actors the, uh, are the people in mm. the country itself. Mm. Sometimes at the very community level. Mm. Sometimes in the capital, in the urban areas, sometimes national level. Yes, maybe you have uh, neighbors, but neighbors are not always also very helpful. Mm. <laughs> uh, we in Timor-Leste, we are lucky. We managed to have a, a great neighbor in Indonesia, and we have a great neighbor, Australia. So we have no problems with our neighbors. Mm-hmm. But you look at some conflicts around the world, well, the conflict problem, the problem would not have happened if they didn't have such neighbors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so when my African brothers and sisters, when I was in the South, they uh, kept saying, African problems, African solutions. I politely uh, listen and bow my head in humility. That's uh, real. But it's not always the case. Mm. Mm. And whether in Africa, <laughs> whether... Uh, well, uh, look at what just happened yesterday and today yeah. in sub uh, Indian mm. subcontinent. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Two great neighbors. Mm. So, uh, <clears throat> but... <clears throat> National leaders are the. And how could national leaders. So then I go back to the civil leadership. If we have uh, outstanding leadership, outstanding not only, well, if you have outstanding academic qualifications, training, might help. Mm. You know. But you might have a uh, summa cum laude, <laughs> PhD. Uh, but you're only good in communicating with your computer. You don't know how to communicate with people. You're completely disconnected from the problems, the dreams, the suffering of uh, the people. Of course, not everybody has to be a leader. You know? We need people who communicate to the computers. We need people who write uh, great PhD dissertation on economics, on sustainable development, yeah. all of that. But at every level, we need leaders yeah. in a classroom. You know, one of our leaders, he died in combat, not synonymous, but before him, called Nicolao Lobato. Well, I first came across Nicolao Lobato, and I remember, I was in a Catholic school, boarding school, in one of the poorest, remotest places on earth, called Soibada in Timor, And uh, barefoot, playing with other school children. Every time that other uh, young person arrived, nicola Lopat, we just all go silent. We all stopped. And we were like, he was like magnetic. And we were seven, eight, and I never forget. He was only three years older, and then I watched as we went to. He finished elementary school there, then he went to seminary, mm-hmm. then came to the capital, and uh, always Nikola Olobatu overwhelming presence. He's just his physical presence, something in him that you stop and watch and listen. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, he sh- so you have leaders who are natural. Chanel Guzman is an incredible, uh, charismatic leader. He has this incredible chemistry with the people.
3: Hmm.
2: I don't know whether sometimes he uh, plays theater or not. Uh, like you know, he kisses all the old ladies uh, in the head, in the nose. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do that. And <laughs> you know, I kissed her, the old lady's hands, but you know. <laughs> I'm not good in the theater, you know. (laughs) Uh, So sometimes I watch him and say, God, is he playing for the, no he's not, you can see that he's really, there is some incredible chemistry. But beyond that, that has to be translated also into policies. Mm. So prevention of conflict comes from great leaders, great leaders who adopt policies, who instigate policies and execute them that leave no one behind, mm. that do not discriminate, that do not make anyone feel that we are not part of the society. Mm. When you are in a multi ethnic society, multi ethnic country, and I have to say, I know so many. Mm. You know, we as third world countries inherit the boundaries from the Berlin Conference. Some not even Berlin Conference because in Asia, Asians were spared the Berlin Conference, but uh, were other uh, arrangements like Myanmar. You know, it was a, a British arrangement. Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, a British arrangement. No offense to the British of today. We cannot blame everything the problems of of the world today, in the Gulf (laughs) countries, on the French, on the British, you know, but these were the, but when we decide to inherit the colonial boundaries, we inherit the colonial boundaries. You have a Gambia, right in the middle of Senegal. Mm. Well, because it inherited from the Berlin Conference, Mm -hmm. from the colonial boundaries. And then you complain about, well, this was all legacy from the Europeans. Yeah, we know that, yeah, legacy from the, from the Europeans, because you wanted the colonial boundaries. because no one there to redraw, you know, to adjust back to the old Mali empire, Ghana empire, Zimbabwe empire, and so on, because it would be, God, maybe be even bigger mess. So once you inherit that, well, you have to have the wisdom because you inherit so many other peoples, and many of your peoples belong already to another country, because that's the boundary you wanted. So leadership, essentially, is you have to know to accommodate everyone, hmm. particularly those who feel they are minority, they are vulnerable. Hmm. That's that leadership, and that means that conflict prevention. Hmm. Yes, if you do that. Great visionary leaders, great policies mm. that are inclusive, embracing of everyone. Mm. Yeah, because I, uh, I don't mention uh, countries, but I tell you know, when I'm asked to go here and there, even today, privately, uh, some government friends ask me to go, we have a private conversation, and I tell them, I say, listen, you, because there are some countries, Myanmar, God, incredibly diverse. Indonesia, the one of the most diverse countries in the world. Mm. But if you look at Indonesia, it's one of the most successful uh, nation building. Mm. In yeah. that uh, you seldom find people who don't feel Indonesians, mm. but it has taken them generations, mm. policies, granting autonomy. <coughs> but I tell uh, some of the leaders, least, if such and such community uh, inhabiting that particular province, that particular territory, is part of the republic. There are problems there. Well, maybe because they don't feel that they are part of, they are not treated, they are not embraced, they don't feel they are part of it. There's something wrong. So So conflict prevention, uh, is that, is that, you know, uh, the UN, what they can the UN do, <laughs> you know, very little. What the UN can do, the European Union can do, identify problems, identify organizations, individuals in the countries concern, and give them resources, because I'm, it requires skills, requires skills, in mediation Mm -hmm. there are some NGOs, some individuals that have fantastic skills, some uh, conflicts in Africa, in Myanmar, in Thailand, Philippines Uh, it's not uh, only governments, you know, the UN even for for many, many years uh, it is some NGOs some individuals who discreetly begin the process of uh, approaching the different groups and uh, Find uh, common ground, but it, it is a very patient work. Absolutely. So anyway, I think uh, I stop here to uh, answer your questions, if any. Uh, I'll be happy to <laughs> continue to continue.
0: Excellent, Mr. President. Thank you. First <laughs> That was a tour de force. That was leadership class 101 mm-hmm. from across all of the theoretical uh, bases that we have discussed over a time or two. You've heard uh, so many several leadership perspectives. Personal, position, results. And actually, much of the conversation around conflict prevention and mediation was processed, was really about the relationship and the dynamics, uh, dynamic between leader and follower. What is fascinating also is that we heard several levels of analysis. At the personal level, you could see how his observations of particular leaders. He even looked at his own trajectory and those people he met along his paths, from childhood to when, to liberation, a struggle across another country, to the United Nations. So, so your history and your engagement with leadership is so apparent across the board in what you've been talking about interpersonal, organizational, um, but also international. And it's amazing. You've had the experience, but not many times, Mr. President, did I hear you talk about yourself yeah. as such. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Not many times. In fact, you spoke about yourself in relation to others. And so you have posed a, you know, a very important intellectual dilemma for me. <laughs> but in leadership terms... And this is about emergence. Tell us about yourself a little bit. At what moment did it strike you that, oh, actually, I'm a leader? You even talked to you about yourself. I said nobody knew me. Nobody knows me. You know, I just went there. You know, asking. I'll wait until he sees me. When did you see yourself as, you know, a leader that has emerged? I, I'm not talking necessarily about elections or anything, but when was the moment in across that experience? I saw a documentary about you um, <clears throat> quite a few years ago now. I think it was the BBC. showed you from the time you landed in New York in 1974 with a little case, wanting to talk to UN members about your struggle in in Timor and having to set up your observer mission, whatever it was, to tell your story. Very compelling. But when did you say to yourself, I consider myself, when did you think you emerged as a leader?
2: Well, uh, I never chose it. I didn't want to be prime minister. Mm. We had the security crisis there. In 2006, 2007, the prime minister resigned.
3: Mm.
2: Everybody uh, said, you, Uh, Mm. so I accepted. Uh, then in uh, 2007, uh, 2007, so I, I managed the government for a year to calm down the situation and then, uh, have elections as scheduled constitutionally in 2007. And then they said you have to run for president. I said, okay, I ran for president. Uh, during my presidency, I, I did things that were totally, how you say, I was criticized for. For uh, particularly NGOs, they said, uh, this president he pardoned left and right. He doesn't even bother reading the files, justice cases, too many uh, pardons, etc cetera, et cetera. So, uh, <clears throat> I explain. Uh, one of the powers or privileges of the president of the republic is to give, uh, to issue uh, pardons, not amnesty, pardons. You know, many countries have that. And uh, I did uh, numerous occasions, many times. uh, And why I did that? A, I, because in our political system, similar to the German, similar to the Austrian, Portugal, is called semi presidential system, not presidential system like the US. Yeah? Semi presidential. The president has certain powers, but not much. Particularly, he has or she has uh, one is signing off the laws, he can veto, he can fight, I don't agree. Uh, he has to sign off the budget, he can disagree, like our president recently done, caused a lot of headaches in the country, finally he did, so he can do that. But also, pardons. My successor, who is now prime minister, in five years he pardoned off uh, five people. The current one, already two years, he has not pardoned anyone. In during my time as president, I pardoned more than 100 people. So I was accused of undermining justice, and uh, i sorry he doesn't even bother reading the files. I say, yeah, I actually do I actually read <laughs> and uh, so a our country is new, fragile, mm-hmm. and people commit crimes uh you have to uh we ha- the justice take its course. Mm-hmm. But then the president—it it is not a privilege of his. It's not like he—he he can do or he cannot do. No, I view it as an obligation. Mm-hmm. In, in Portuguese, say <laughs> "indultar," "indulto," pardon of. It's an obligation. It is there in constitution. If it's not an obligation, it shouldn't be there in the constitution. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I reviewed the cases, and but, and I became very proactive on that. And why? Because. If I don't send my own people to go to the prison to check, well, if you follow the, the, the procedures, well, I know my country, as I probably would know Nigeria, mm-hmm. I probably would know Philippines. <laughs> well, uh, people are forgotten in the prisons. I can imagine how many people are not forgotten in prisons. No one cares about them. So I'm not going to wait for my bureaucracy to follow So no, I, I send my lawyers, my uh, office lawyers, you go no, and check on the situation in the prison. So I did the reverse. Instead of starting with the prison warden, then the prison warden sent to the Minister of Justice. The Minister of Justice goes to the Council of Ministers and then come to the president. I did the opposite. No, I'm the one who started the process. And what is my philosophy? I'm complementing justice because there are some situations that God the sentence too harsh. Sometimes uh, you know uh, our uh, justice system exercise their uh, their Mm responsibilities as if we were in a normal society, country. We're still traumatized country. We're still very wounded society. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> people don't imagine where we came from, you know. Uh, uh, but those who had the training, uh, young people, uh, like i have give an example. A former minister, <coughs> a lady in my country, uh, was sentenced to five years in prison because of something like $5,000 that was unaccounted for. I said, God, Mm -hmm. if $5,000 you get five years, 100,000 probably you get 50 years in prison. If a million (laughs) dollars, how much? (laughs) It's just disproportionate. Uh, And so on, and so on, (coughs) so. For me, again, so my actions, Based also on compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, one. That's what I did, and I refuse uh, all those nonsense of uh, God motorcade, you know, following me or uh, motor, you know, police with a motorbike and siren. <laughs> God, even as <laughs> I know, I refuse that. I didn't allow it, and. Uh, I I remember I was president, there was a big meeting in my country, uh, organized by the European Union, the UN, and there were many African leaders came, more than 40 countries participated. Mm. And I was driving my little, uh, it's called Moke, M-O-K-E, I don't know if you're familiar, A British vehicle from the 50s, the 60s. <laughs> I bought in Australia for $3,000, completely broken. I fixed it. It's a great car. Mm. The engine is you very still good. Have it? I still have it. I use it almost every day. And uh, and I was present. I was driving this towards the conference hall. Mm-hmm. And then I saw this motor case coming from <laughs> another direction. Blah, blah, blah. So I had to stop. <laughs> 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 And But someone in the cars, in the motor case, told the, the delegates, well, that's our president. And, uh, but they were, you know, I had to move sideways. So When I arrived at the conference hall, they are all waiting outside. So all those African oh, leaders, yes, ministers, sir. they
3: waited.
2: <laughs> because they knew it was me arriving soon. Okay. And they all came to shake hands with me. <laughs> they said, "Well, uh, we so we wanted just to meet you to uh, congratulate, it, congratulate you." And do you uh, think
0: they felt a little bit bad for the uh, no, uh, <laughs> no, no,
2: no? Uh, uh, you know, they are guests. I guess, I guess uh, we don't no need security, but you know, if you have a police, if you have a you know with that uh, siren,
3: hmm.
2: well, they like to use it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't allow them to use, why did you buy it? <laughs> like you know, when I go to the villages I, vi- I enjoy going to the countryside yeah. to visit communities you know some of the roads nothing happened there occasionally a goat crossed <laughs> the road a pig crossed the road mm-hmm. but the police still like using the wing wing, wing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, cannot, <laughs> I cannot even imitate the, the sound it irritates me And I tell them, I say, listen, is there any uh, traffic on the road? (laughs) I saw one goat, so why did they have to use it? Amazing. But that, you know, is show, you know.
0: (laughs) No, 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 uh, that's interesting. The the way I take this, and and if you listen, when we do the analysis of this experience later in subsequent classes, uh, you read the message of legacy there. And therefore, it takes me to the question of effectiveness. I can already see all of the things that you felt made you effective as a leader.
1: You're listening to Public Debate Program, and our guest today is the former president of Istimo, Jose Ramos Horta.
0: When you think back, what what would you see as the one area where you think back and you say, I don't think I was effective in that area? Because I even count this whole issue of pardons as a legacy, as uh, a mark of effectiveness, and something that is probably even unique to you. Maybe others didn't want to do it, but your style of leadership is yeah. very evident. But effectiveness—what so, troubles you the most?
2: Uh, let me explain to you the rational why I did. I did it because I enjoy it. I don't, I don't like mm. protocol. I don't like all these motorcades. So that's one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, uh, uh, and I enjoy driving my own car. Uh, uh, so, yeah. but also uh, two uh, effects. One, I said it, uh, and I explained in the presidential office, I explained to my people, my staff, that sometimes they don't understand. I tell them why I do it. A, to sh- because when people in the street, because we came from conflict, from violence, and when people watch the president, Driving, him, I myself, and then uh, traffic light, I stop. My car is very low, you know. Uh, people stop next to me in their motorbike, mm. in their jeep, and they turn. Oh, president, bon dia, bon, good morning. Uh, uh, so, this uh, I I study. I look at their faces. Of course, they are happy, but they they, they feel yes, the country Mexico. is safe.
0: Yeah, feels secure.
2: Yeah, the president totally <laughs> relaxed, no security around him. So it's very psychological. Mm. Second, I say in this twenty-first century, leadership has to connect with the people. Mm. One of the problems in Europe, in the European Union, for instance, why uh, the, when they vote for the Euro- European Parliament, not only now for a long time, very. few small percentage participate. Mm. We create institutions that almost like uh, disconnected from the people. Uh, so I said, no, in uh, my view, 21st century leadership, uh, you either you choose an imperial style leadership mm. or you choose a uh, uh, people's uh, mm. leadership, of course, you have to understand circumstances you know where you do you can do how you do it, and all of that that's mm. one uh, <clears throat> of course uh, no uh, literally no one in my country uh, other leaders followed that mm. even uh, a little junior minister he loves to have a two three security and then someone carry his suitcase, uh, suitcase you no know, attache it case. Is, yes, yes, uh, Because, you know, if you are a junior minister, <laughs> we, we, it's called secretary <coughs> of state. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a minister, deputy minister, secretary of state. If you don't have a, a, at least one security card behind you, if you don't have two, three security follow you, and one who then get off the car and carry your attache case, to go to the meeting, then you are not very important. So, it is so silly, mm. you know, uh, <laughs> but it happens all over. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. But
0: you've seen this in much of Africa as well. Mm. Everything you're talking about uh, happens <coughs> a hundred times over um, <laughs> in many parts of Africa, not least my own country. <laughs> uh, yeah.
2: But also, any uh, policies, you know, uh, in that I always argued: education, education, education; health, health, health; food security, food security. Some of the basics, Because when I travel to the remote areas, I meet with the communities, and they ask. I, I stop, engage in dialogue. They make their list of requests. God, they don't ask anything out of this wall. They ask so little. And even that so little, we are not delivering. When I was in Guinea-Bissau, representing Secretary General, I went once to an island. And uh, I went all over Guinea-Bissau. I enjoyed it, and sometimes I was embarrassed. I was hoping the Secretary General wouldn't see the pictures. Because I was received like the Secretary General of the UN. I was received <laughs> like the President of the country. But the people are smart. They do all of that extravagance of receiving me in some of the islands because they, uh, they are going to make requests. <laughs> so, and uh, some of my UN uh, colleagues in the mission they said, be careful, don't create uh, too much expectations. God, so don't create not. So I don't go. I stay in the UN compound. Mm. Uh, if my expectation is to, if the expectation create, it, it, that I create is giving them hope, well, that's already good. I want them to have hope for the future, that something is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I will work to try to help the country achieve what they want. And uh, <clears throat> I remember going to those islands and... Uh, Then they came with a long list of things. I told them, I said, listen, you meet again. Just bring me two requests. (laughs) They're like 10 or 20 requests. And uh, because the special president secretary general, you know, uh, the UN is not a funding institution. It's a political security institution. (coughs) Funding institutions would be the uh, African Development Bank, in the Mm -hmm. case of Africa, World Bank, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, individual donors like the European Union and so on. Not especially special the sector, yes. but I tried to uh, do my best to help them. Okay, they went back. They, I saw them gathering in a circle. They came back. They need uh, maritime transportation because there are so many islands oh,
3: yeah. true. to transport people.
2: Something. And they're good. They say, we don't have a, a way to transport our vegetables to the market. Mm. I said, okay, I, I will help you. I will get you two boats but I want the boats being built in Guinea-Bissau. We could have bought it in, in Senegal, uh, but you, uh, they can do, do it there. And I found the money to pay for it. And it was uh, yeah. b- built there in Guinea-Bissau. Another time was I heard there was a lot of uh, solar panels mm-hmm. with the poles, you know, complete, yeah. in a UN warehouse in Guinea-Bissau. But because of the sanctions from against Guinea-Bissau, by the European Union, and Security Council, whatever, because they're cool, more than 100, uh, 200 units were stuck in a warehouse. And uh, I was told by my UN, uh, well, we cannot uh, use I said, listen, what mm-hmm. is this? Uh, this is for benefit of the people, you sanctions. Uh, I challenge it? I challenge that. <laughs> But I didn't have money to transport those. So I called four governors of four regions in Guinea-Bissau. I said, listen, do you want some uh, street lighting? (laughs) They said, yes. Well, can you come and pick it up? (laughs) They said, yes. But you have to put it up. I don't have money. Yeah, we can put it up. So (laughs) they took. And then uh, my staff said, well, it really having an impact there. Because those people never electricity. So one evening I decided to go to one of the towns. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a fantastic, uh, you know, very, you know, you get emotional about it, you know. Mm-hmm. I arrived there, under a street lighting, some people already selling, you know, they have a night market.
3: Absolutely.
2: In another, a group of people uh, reading, uh, young people studying. Uh, so my point is that the UN itself, the way I, I decide to do, no. I'm going to t- bring the UN to the people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I cannot do much. It is they who have yeah. to f- uh, resolve their problem. Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: And uh, so a- again, you know, that the, uh, I, I, I hate the talking. You know what I did, what I did, what I didn't do. But uh, as you you uh, you insist. Uh, <laughs> uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> uh some uh <clears throat> message is we have uh, to do our very best with our limitation, mm-hmm. our flaws, mm-hmm. uh you know, uh to help people we are deployed to serve.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh good
2: you get down to the communities, uh, then yes, you hear their whispers. You hear, sometimes you don't even have to hear, you can feel what's happening in that community. Mm. Uh, and you can do that only if you get down to, but that in every level. So I'm, uh, uh, this in a village in Timor or in Guinea-Bissau, but in your workplace in London, you work with 10 people, you work with five people, you work with 100 people, well, you have the possibility of create the best possible atmosphere Absolutely. with your leadership in uh, where, wherever you are. So you're not talking about national leadership, president, mm. prime minister, mm. at every level, even at home. Mm. You know.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. So I don't want to monopolize this too much. So I'm going to keep my one last question, uh, my question to the last. But you can think about it a little bit, Mr. President. Don't answer yet. Is to say, when you think back all those years, the past three decades, what is one regret that you have? But don't tell me yet.
3: <laughs>
0: so let's see a show of hands. Who has questions? Okay. Somebody warned me here. Somebody, you still have your question? You see. He's answered. Oh, good, wonderful. Wadesa, Natasha, who else? Oh, oh, (laughs) all right. Those three. I'll take. Let's hear the three of you, one after the other.
4: why those processes have not been replicated um, amongst other countries that have had similar tensions and similar histories of conflict mm-hmm. and repression. Um, and so from the context of your global leadership or your national leadership, it would be interesting to hear what your thoughts are about why the leaders of
0: countries have not agitated for those processes to happen. And for those, you know, for, for those memories and for those histories so, okay, to reflect on why the kind of arrangement you had between, you had yeah. national level reconciliation, then you had the Indonesia uh, Timorese conversation, or process. Why is that not uh, a regular thing? Why doesn't this happen more uh, in the world? Just your reflections. Natasha. Very quickly, one Hi, and a half.
4: I'm Natasha, so um, attached to reconciliation, I'm just interested in terms of how um, you talked about it not just being from like a upper level in terms of like the officials of this country reconciliating with the officials of another country. How do you engage people who experience the everyday of um, war, and did they get to decide whether they want to participate in reconciliation? Um, and then my second question is to do with, um, you touched about,
0: fashionable struggles, and I wonder whether um, fashionable struggles attract things that make people pay attention.
4: Is it possible to make a struggle fashionable?
3: Mm.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Hi. Who was that? Gloriana, yes. I'm Gloriana, and one of the things I'll admit, I Googled you, (laughs) (laughs) and I read a few of your articles, and I really admire that you have been such a vocal advocate for human rights specifically of some of the most vulnerable groups in both in your own country and around the world. So my question is, right now we're living at a time where leadership processes are sometimes being consolidated by the exclusion of certain groups. Mm -hmm. And I'm referring specifically to the way Donald Trump made xenophobia and racism, or Jair Bolsonaro made misogyny Mm -hmm. and homophobia, Mm -hmm. or Jimmy Morales Mm -hmm. in Guatemala also made misogyny and homophobia all a part of their cons- the, the consolidation mm-hmm. of their leadership mm-hmm. process. So my question is, given that this is a time we're living in, what advice do you have for those of us mm-hmm. who are aware of th- these processes, mm-hmm. are horrified, mm-hmm. and want to live in a
0: kinder, mm-hmm. better world? <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want to take that, uh, do you want to respond to this and then we we'll take, uh? Okay, oh, Mireille, let's hear you. Uh, yes, thank you very much for being with us and for sharing your, your experience in a such
4: a humble Can way. you
0: tell him your name? And your oh, sorry. My name, <coughs> is, my name is Mireille, so uh,
4: I was saying that uh, thank you so much for being with us tonight and for sharing your uh, your experience with such a humble view. Um, my question is, you talk about how inspired you were in front of obviously Mandela and his um, legacy in your life in a certain way. My question would be, what, in three words, what type of uh, legacy would you like to leave on this, uh, how do say,
0: um, yeah, regarding what you have done and about your experience? What kind of legacy would yes. you like to live in this world? Uh? For people to remember you. How would what you, what you want to be remembered. You?
2: <laughs> well, uh, the first one, uh, go with uh, reconciliation.
0: Yeah. The, the binational reconciliation, yeah. why don't we get more of it?
2: Uh, A, I would say that uh, one uh, solution or one prescription might not necessarily be applicable, practical, feasible in uh, another Similar situation. Uh, What we did domestically in Timor-Leste, and then with Indonesia, uh, might not be possible because of. uh, I give one example. Uh, When I did the UN panel on peace operations, myself and my colleagues, we traveled extensively, and uh, we went to Islamabad, Pakistan. And uh, we went to ba- first Bangladesh, then uh, later Islamabad. And Islamabad, we are going to uh, Delhi. Only when we were in Islamabad, I was told that uh, to go to Delhi, there are no direct flights from uh, Delhi from Islamabad. You have to go to Doha. And uh, I thought that was absurdity. And I said no. Uh, I have to go all the way to Doha and then fly to Delhi? And I insisted. So we flew to Lahore. And then 40-minute drive to Wagga. A week earlier, there had been a Taliban attack in Wagga because Every Thursday, they have this goose step, uh, uh, chains of guard. And it was that moment that the Taliban attack killed 50 uh, soldiers there. So when we were there, myself and uh, my colleagues, one was a great uh, woman, Amira Haq from Bangladesh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. uh, and uh, <clears throat> to cross, we, so we cross on foot, dragging our uh, suitcases, And I joke in the meantime, I say, "Well, we all look like illegal immigrants." (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Although people know facilitated and all of that, but uh, we still have to go through all that uh, procedure. But standing there, you know, I could not help but thinking the failure of leadership between Pakistan and India. Seventy years after independence, mm. the largest, one of the largest combination of standing army in the world, mm. nuclear weapons pointing at each other. How is this? This is supposed to be two third world countries, two cousin countries. You know, you don't call brothers, but they, if not the brothers, they are cousins. That is what you can say: utter failure of leadership. Those two countries. And uh, yesterday, today, situation escalated very dangerously. It is so tragic, so sad. Uh, So why all these years? Before that, long before that, uh, two years, uh, three years, when I finished presidency, I went to Bangladesh. I was invited by some friends there. At that time, uh, there were trials ongoing for uh, on, uh, the people who were involved during the independence war, mm-hmm. Pakistan and Bangladesh, 1971. So it had been 40 years. They brought them to trial, accused of collaborating with Pakistan, uh, committed crimes, and they were sentenced to death 40 years later. And uh, I gave a talk to civil society there in uh, Dhaka, and I told about reconciliation. Well, it to them, made no sense at all. It, they went ahead, and that leader and others were executed 40 years after so they was say, you know, our experience, uh, you know, we were criticized, many of our uh, victims criticized, uh, but overall people accepted uh, the decision, message of the leadership. We had to explain again and again why we are doing that. Uh, so it's not always easy to transport you know, the South African uh, situation to another situation. South African situation, a uh, model to us, perfectly. We adapted to our reality because mm-hmm. internal and with Indonesia we had to do it. So, but again, in all of this require leadership. I don't know whether in South Africa, if it were not Mandela, with his great towering personality, mm-hmm. another leader you know, without his authority, would have been able to do it. So, back to the leadership. Uh, Mandela, he believed in it, his authority, that's what he proposed to the nation. In Timor-Leste, Shanana Guzman, I mention him because he was uh, uh, the main leader, the most uh, authority there, that's what he believed. He proposed to the people some controversy, like in South Africa. Some people uh, wouldn't agree, but in the end, so. We had this experience. The Indonesian president, uh, I was foreign minutes at the time when the one of uh, the Indonesian president at the time visit, uh, Susili Bambang with Yono. He had been a military person in Timor during the occupation, a young officer there, and uh, and I volunteer to be the minister in attendance. This is a bit of an uh, Asian habit, you know. You I don't know whether it exists in Africa, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, head of state arrive, and uh, someone is assigned to be the minister in attendance. Yes. So you're always yeah. in the visiting. I volunteer to be the minister in to the president of Indonesia, because I knew him. Mm-hmm. So you go, I go in his car. <laughs> and uh, So we went first to the cemetery, our cemetery, where Many of our people were buried, killed by Indonesian military. Not many years, like in Mm. ninety-one, the infamous Santa Cruz massacre. He visited our uh, martyrs. Next door, only across the street, there was the Indonesian military cemetery where many Indonesian military were buried, and he was going to visit as well. His security, his protocol, told go into. The motorcade, the vehicle. I told the president, president, uh, just let just walk, and uh, he agreed. In the meantime, a crowd began to form, and I noticed some people getting nervous. I told the Indonesian president, president, let's go and greet them. Well, a commotion happened. Everybody wanted to greet the president. I, I saw an old man crying. Uh, why? For them, they were so happy, emotional, to see the leader of Indonesia, the new Indonesia visiting us. And these people, were, they carry in their heart, their soul, the, the suffering of very, very recent few years. Mm-hmm. So we the Indonesian military uh, cemetery. Then from there to the national parliament. You know, our sit- you know, in um, most countries, people don't build a university right across the street or parliament right across the street from the university. You know, when students want to do demonstrations, they don't even have to pay bus fare. <laughs> <laughs> they just, they, they just, you, know, you just come outside, right there, you know, facing each other in our narrow street. So I, I told the president, I said, I don't know whose idea was that, but we are going to the parliament. Across the street is the university. So there will be a lot of students there. So when we get there, uh, instead of going straight to the parliament, you turn around and greet the students. So that's what he did. He turned around. Salamat pagi. That's in Bahasa, Indonesia, Malay. Salamat pagi. Good morning. Everybody erupted. Salamat pagi back. Good morning. Back to him. Clapping and so on. Well, after he left, the visit was great. Uh, and nothing was choreographed, you know, because we are not terribly good in organizing things. So it's <laughs> uh, mostly improvised. And it was amazing that people spontaneously react. And I sent a message to the UN special representative in Timor, because they're still talking about yeah. tribunals and so on. And uh, I don't mention his name, but uh, he's no long, it was not yet Amira Haq at the time. Yeah, okay. I yeah. said, listen, so uh, if you wanted a referendum on our reconciliation policies with Indonesia, you wanted today in the streets the way people reacted to the visiting president. So, uh, mm. okay. uh, the other, uh, so,
0: the struggle. Uh, how do you make a struggle fashionable? I think oh, that's okay. the origin. Well,
2: um, my, uh, maybe I, I got the, the, wrong, the wrong choice of word. In the sense, you know, some struggles, like apartheid, you know, God mobilized the whole world. Mm. But it was not always like that. It took time, you no. know. Uh, <laughs> the Vietnam War, you know, protests and so on. uh and Timur was not <coughs> fashionable. It, was, I know, it happened <coughs> after 91 with the media b- became more. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so your question is how to make it? Well, nowadays it's easier with <laughs> the g- digital media. Mm-hmm. Back then, mm-hmm. so difficult. Yeah. So today, yourself, any of you, absolutely smart. You pick an idea, do something. God, it goes viral. Millions of people watch. I always wanted to do something like that, but, <laughs> 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 yeah, but uh, you know, it it, means it has to be young people <laughs> <with> <laughs> who uh, who uh, do it. Yeah. But with the right message, you know, you have the the equipment. You have the tools but that's not enough. Mm. You have to, what is the message that captures people's imagination and interest, mm. and then how to sustain it? That's yeah. a challenge uh, to you. And there are things that you can, we, we can do. Uh, uh, nowadays, it is in your hands as young people creative, intelligent, imaginative. How can you counter racism? How can you counter all these prejudices that come out from uh, ignorance? Mm. Because, yes, a lot of this is ignorance. You know, uh, about people. Uh, And uh, I have given uh, speeches uh, on uh, immigration, on refugees uh, in Australia. They launched a big program uh, three, four years ago, Mm. and I cited specific stories. Like when I was writing my speech, a friend of mine from L.A. told me about a series of films she was doing commissioned by NASA on women in NASA. Mm -hmm. And she said, Only when she completed the series, 14 women in Naza, then she realized nine of them were actually refugees of immigrants and of children of immigrants. Like one woman from Myanmar, her name is Mimi. She left Myanmar age 14. And uh, she's one of the engineers in Naza, designing the helicopter to land in March in 2022 or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, someone from uh, mm-hmm. another, a survivor of the killing fields of Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Another one of the first Vietnamese boat people in the mm-hmm. 80s uh, that fled. Uh. So refugees, immigrants, built <laughs> much of the wall, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, As I was driving to the university to give that particular talk, I looked to the left, I saw a building, a new building, with the name of a a gentleman who donated the money. Well, I first met that gentleman in an event in Ireland, in Dublin. I was sitting with a few people, uh, we are all going to be honored in that particular event, and uh, I'm always curious, I ask, you know, uh, different people, who we were. Uh, some they were well known. Hamid Karzai, Afghanistan was. Yeah. There was a gentleman sitting next to my right. I asked him, "And who are you?" Uh, he said, "I'm so and so. I'm a businessman. What kind of business?" You know, I was asked questions like you know, immigration people asking, <laughs> 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 "What kind of business?" Yeah, oh, uh, he's from Australia. He yeah. said, "I own a Westfield." I, uh, the only Westfield I knew was the one in Liverpool where my mother used to live. You know, Liverpool is very, not Liverpool, England, Liverpool, Sydney. And uh, I said, you own the uh, Westfield in Liverpool? Yeah, that one and all of them in Australia and the US. I said, wow, well, you must be very rich. <laughs> and uh, tell me again your name. <laughs> he said, I'm Frank Lowy. Well, you can Google Frank Lowy. He is survivor of the Holocaust. He arrived in Australia, no money. Well, so my point is, God, you know, the, the uh, uh, refugees, immigrants help build empires. Mm. Mm. You know, uh, in my own country, you know, we have so many so-called illegal uh, migrants, so-called, I hate this expression. Mm. And I always tell our people, why someone from Bangladesh would bother coming to Timor-Leste? Mm. <laughs> yes. Someone from a village somewhere in Bangladesh decides to come to Timor-Leste. And I meet a lot of them. I drive, I see some uh, new face, and uh, I, I, I'm very good with uh, ethnicity. I, I look at a person, I know where he's from. I know. Mm. Those guys, they are not India. They are not, uh, they, I think they're Bangladeshis. I got mm-hmm. off the car went to greet them, they're actually from Bangladesh. <laughs> so what the hell of Bangladesh, came all the way. Uh, and I tell our people, why someone? where well, they do exactly what we did. First, bad opportunity for their own people. They dream, they thought, they had an illusion, and they come to Tim and they settle there, mm-hmm. and they're doing reasonable well. Not one single refugee in my country, not one single immigrant, so-called illegal, is unemployed, and they are not getting government um, uh, help. <laughs> <I suppose.
1: Yeah. laughs> You're listening to Public Debate Program, and our guest today is the former president of East Jose Ramos Horta.
0: Wonderful. Shall we take Gloriana's question? And what was your...
4: Yes. What would your advice be to of us
2: that want to live in a world that's more kinder? Yes. Yeah. Uh, No, uh, my answer, I thought, will cover also mm. your uh, concern in this broader uh, uh, sense. What okay. each of us can do. Uh, mm. yeah, the, so that's, I thought.
0: Good. I think uh, the last thing was about what you'd like to be remembered for.
2: Uh, you know, really. Uh, mm. God, uh, who cares? <laughs> I'm, I'm gone, dead. Of course, my relatives, my brothers, sisters, those who survive, their nephews, countless, they will be missing. And uh, uh, what I really care, yeah, what I do today to help people who have less than me. And uh, I cannot do much. As an individual, as an individual, I cannot do much. <laughs> but if I help, if I save one single person, mm. yeah, I saved <laughs> one person. Mm. If you can save ten, if you can help ten, you can have help twenty. You help twenty, and that's all I care. Mm. Mm. If I'm in a position of power, yes, multiplying effect. You no, know, you can do much more. Mm. You know, uh, so. Uh, I don't have a great illusions of uh, well, I want to be remembered for this, but I never think uh, of that. And mostly people forget you anyway. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, on occasion, once a year, there might be if you're big, like you know, a ceremony. Mm. But uh,
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: right, okay, Mr. President, finally, finally, if there's one regret you have about the last three or so decades or more, the last four decades, and you, you know, and you say, I wish I'd done that differently. What is it?
2: Well, there are so many that <laughs> I wouldn't know where no. to start. Okay,
0: uh, maybe just one example.
2: Well, uh, and even that, I don't know whether I, w- I would be right uh, mm. in that... Um, In uh, 1999, when the referendum happened and there were discussions about uh, the UN presence in the country, uh, how long? Uh, I argue for uh, at least a five year uh, period Mm. uh, to better prepare us uh, before independence is declared. Uh, A, in New York, there was no mood to have a, a prolonged u n presence there that's number one in my own country. there were some ultra <coughs> patriots who, after five hundred years colonial rule, twenty four mm-hmm. years in Indonesia, occupation, were not prepared to wait five years mm-hmm. and I simply okay, fine so I didn't uh, uh, fight but uh, yes. also my chances of fighting uh, that's why I said earlier, you know I was never leader of uh, so, uh, uh, I didn't even bother discussing that with Chanana because I knew he wouldn't agree. Mm. Uh, but had we had more time to prepare more the institutions, mm. because when we started, I tell you, uh, our currency today, for the last, since independence, is the US dollar. That's our official currency, good and bad. Uh, we uh, we don't have monetary policy <laughs> because you know need the u.s treasury central bank that decide mm. how much money to release or money to uh, uh, maybe we should have started with a national currency mm. uh, maybe we should have a uh, look at another form of constitution Because the current constitution, semi-presidentialism, it worked in Portugal. Uh, France has also the same, but uh, France, the French uh, semi-presidentialism probably is the real, uh, is more presidentialist than semi-presidentialism. Guinea-Bissau has this system, caused so many problems there Mm. in Mm. Guinea-Bissau. So this would be some of the mistakes Again, I said I'm not sure whether I'm, I'm right. You know, uh, but uh, I would have uh, should have fought harder. But at the same time, I said, well, I, I didn't have a I don't uh, lead a political party. Mm-hmm. I still don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's great to be neutral. Great to be you don't belong to any political party. Mm-hmm. But also it's a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. in that well, you know, if I command six at least ten seats in the parliament, everybody will come to talk to me. <laughs> you know, you know,
0: I don't, so. <laughs> mm. uh, okay, that's going to be the last question. Were there any other? We, we're going to stop very soon. J- Jacob, w- very quickly, please.
4: It is Brexiting. From uh, from global affairs with Brexit and all that. Then you have multilateral organizations such as the UN, NATO, EU, which are basically been quite ineffective dealing with these problems. My question is, where do you think we should look for leadership in the next 15-10 years? Or where do you think leadership will emerge in the next 10-15 years to tackle these problems (coughs) if they do, if this scenario persists?
0: Where will leadership emerge from to tackle global challenges like climate change, uh, threat of nuclear war, everything?
2: Uh, <laughs> that is a, uh, I would say, uh, it is. <clears throat> yes, uh, our uh, wall, we have, uh, we have immediately after the fall of Berlin Wall, oh. hopes were great everything was going to be possible. No more wars. Well, uh, we are facing extraordinary times, Mm -hmm. extraordinary challenges, very serious. Look at the the volatility of India, Pakistan, South China Sea getting militarized Instead of the powers that be looking at the way how to engage China, no, the British decide to send two warships there. The Chinese probably all very intimidated by that, and Australia <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Australia uh, had to send loyally also one warship to join the British armada. So the area became very militarized with. Uh, Ships and aircraft flying, military aircraft. You will end up with uh, some accident happen and then escalate. Uh, And the the real issue of uh, environment. Uh, Water, fresh water, will be a cause of war. It's already frictions. How will Ethiopia, Egypt, Sudan, the many countries border that border, uh, you know, from the f- source to uh, Egypt manage this. Ethiopia decide to have a, a dam. There's already tensions, you know, I think, you know, from uh, Egyptian side. And uh, we pray that everything will be absolutely safe. That the dam itself will not be uh, cause a catastrophic mm-hmm. environmental. So. But then look at Europe. I have the greatest uh, respect for the European Union. What they they achieve in terms of European Union, and what they try to do with it. Uh, and the European Union re- uh, could have been a major factor in uh, balancing the rivalries among the major powers. Mm -hmm. Because the European Union as such, or individually, are not a major military Mm -hmm. force. Mm -hmm. So, essentially, soft power, Mm -hmm. the European Union. Economics, technology, Mm -hmm. science, and so on. And I would thought I would think that the European Union would be, play a major balancing role between U.S. and Asia, between US and, U.S. and China, between U.S. and Russia, and so on. But it is in disarray, and we lose a very, very important uh, partner in the U.N., of course, the European Union is still important, in spite of Brexit and all of that, but uh, so uh, are they going to be able to resolve this? I don't know. If UK actually leave, well, what are the guarantees that it is not going to happen with other countries? And no one is, no European country alone is going to benefit from it. So that means add more problems to the international uh, scenario. Ironically, with situation in the US, the leadership, I think one country that is emerging as a global power, stable, steady, predictable, is China. We have a, <laughs> a bipolar world today, rested in Washington and uh, Beijing. In the past, it was US and Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union, its power rested only on the number of nuclear warheads it has, not sustained by financial and economic power. Mm-hmm. The current bipolar world, Washington and Beijing, this China, is sustained by an enormous web of finance of economics, of... A, you know, they have a look at the whole controversy or the uh, G, uh, five, five, 5G. Mm-hmm. Well, that has to do with technology. Mm-hmm. The Chinese managed to do it. And so... Uh, but, on the other hand, the China, China is a 5,000-year-old civilization. Mm-hmm. They know how to adapt. They have shown it since... Uh, they, when Deng Xiaoping, so they ended the Cultural Revolution, they know how to adapt because of the 5,000-year uh, civilization. Are they going to adapt to the change in uh, China? Yes, you can see. They have done this over the last 30, 40 years. The political system tried to accommodate. And they do it with wisdom because if... Too much political openness, God. (laughs) So it has to be very balanced, very Mm -hmm. careful. And we hope, we pray that, because remember, the civil war in China, zero effect even on their neighbors. The cultural revolution, no effect on their neighbors. But today, if there is some sort of instability in China, Mm. God, all over the world is a nightmare. And uh, so we all should pray that China stays stable, predictable.
3: Uh,
2: right. So anyway, uh, so the, the world situation is really, so you have a secretary general, a good man, brilliant, who really came from the field. He took office in their own time. Well, actually I wouldn't say the wrong time, he took office, someone like him is necessary. Mm for these current times. But God, I I don't want to be in his position. (laughs) (laughs) And the UN is becoming dangerously irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Not entirely, because in spite of all the problems, the UN, the ones that are trying to negotiate safe area in uh, a port in Yemen, Mm -hmm. It is the UN that is, through its agency, UNSCI, still mobilizing resources for the hundreds of thousands of refugees. It's the UN that is sheltering hundreds of people in the UN compound in, uh, in <laughs> yeah, South Sudan. So, so. The UN would be far worse. The world would be far worse without the UN. Mm-hmm. I end my comments with this. When I did uh, the UN report, the peacekeeping report, I I commented on the first page. Uh, I dedicated the report to a four-year-old girl from South Sudan. I read her story and uh, really broke my heart. That was this girl. Her name is Nyakahat. Incredible girl. She walked four hours from her village, holding a stick her father, blind father, behind. So she is the one guiding her father through the conflict, the villages, towards a UNICEF feeding center. She arrived there. A UNICEF staff spotted her and uh, immediately talked to her. And she was the one doing the talk, explaining. Her father was there silent, and three, four dogs accompanying what Nyakahat's story tells us, A, an indictment of the international community, an indictment of the UN, of all of us, we fail to prevent the conflict in South Sudan. We have failed so far to help resolving it. But also, it is a recognition that if the UN was not there, in spite of all the flaws, the situation would be far worse, Yakaha to be dead. So that's the I end with this.
3: Well. I, I <laughs>
0: There you have it. I think this is the last of the uh, high-level uh, public uh, intellectuals that you'll have for the term. But I think some of your leadership assignments have been answered. Your, le- your leadership exam is written for you, uh, in a sense. Mr. President, thank you so much. What a pleasure.
1: Joining? Thank you for listening to Public Debate, and ILC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com.